I'm David Kern. And I'm Heidi White. And Tim McIntosh is going to be here later. We keep saying that. He's not even in Scotland. He is still alive. We have recently heard from him. He got a last minute call into a meeting with the CEO of his company, which seems like a big deal. So he said he's going to be a little bit late. So we just kept our recording time because we can't push it because Heidi, you and I have... It's the very last minute. We're at the same... This this is like down to the minute. We have a thing this weekend that we're both going to be attending. And um, it's it's a big deal. My sister is getting married. That's right. That's right. My sister is getting married. You and Scott are in town and you're going to be part of the wedding and there's a rehearsal dinner tonight and all that. And so we are on a tight schedule. So that's what's happening this weekend. A schedule. How are you feeling about all that? Like, how are you feeling about just... I'm so excited. um, You know, the chaos of our lives. (laughs) I know. I'm so glad. Our life really right now just feels a lot like a sitcom. But I love sitcoms. So life is a comedy and a comedy always ends in a wedding. And that's what this, way, what this weekend true. is going to exactly. be. So I'm so thrilled. I'm really, really, really happy uh, for the couple and I'm excited to be here. And so... So I always... I, I laughed because you know, it, was like a, it was like a joke that Cersei had too many kerns and my dad and I would have these meetings sometimes and we'd say there's too much family working together we need to change that we probably need to get more people here that are not kerns it just kind of worked out that way it's a true family business so then I left and I and there was this joke well at least now there's not going to be so many kerns and while strictly speaking that is true what's happening now is the two families that are like most involved in Cersei the kerns and the biancos are now just being combined through marriage. So now instead of having less people be related, it's just like everybody but four people is related now. So this is um, a, a comment you know, they, that the Scott White made this morning. He said, wow, it's like the two most powerful houses are joining together in a mighty unity. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> I, said, it's, I, a I, game I, of it's like the most <laughs> it's the most Scott way of putting it, I feel like. Yes. I like indeed. it. Yeah. So yeah, we both have that going on this weekend. So we didn't really have a lot of wiggle room here. So we're gonna we're here to answer your questions, and Tim's gonna join us in a second. Before we do that, though, Heidi, you remember our friends, our good friends from Center for Lit? Remember those? I guys? do. I remember that. I love those guys. We got Adam and Missy and Ian and Emily and that whole crew. Well, they've got some cool stuff going on this fall, and they asked us if we could mention it, and I said. Well, yeah, I can no. mention it. So <laughs> we refuse. Uh, so one thing is they have this podcast they do called Bibliophiles. And I've, I've been on that podcast. They're, they're just a lot of fun. Another family business, by the way. Um, but what they do is each season has a new series or a series of questions or ideas that are of literary significance. And so what they're trying to do is they're reading through great ideas. They're discussing great ideas through legendary works of artists past and present. Right. So this current season is one that is near and dear to my heart. It's called, I believe they're calling it Bibliophiles at the Movies, which is so good. It's perfect. And what they're going to do is the whole Andrews clan, the Center for Lit clan, is going to be discussing adaptations of literary works specifically for the screen. So they're going to talk about the similarities and differences between you know those two different genres so literature and film which is something that you know I feel uh, strong feelings about. And then they're going to discuss the importance of reading film according to its own unique traits. So I've been on these uh, a couple film conversations with Sean over the years um I mean with Ian over the years uh and um l- let me just say it's hard to find somebody who's more fun to talk about movies with unless it's Sean. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Uh, uh, but Ian knows movies really well and that the whole Andrews clan knows how to read stories and, and they love movies. And so if you are interested in cinematic adaptations of books, they're going to go through, I think, nine or 10 different movies during that season. So that's going to be just... As the kids say, that's going to be a dope podcast. You should listen. They also have another podcast called How to Eat an Elephant, which kind of is like our bonus podcast. You know, it's longer books. What they're trying to do is like comb the shelves for classic doorstoppers. That's their tagline for that, which I love. So books that are so thick, you don't even want to carry them, much less tackle their contents. So it's like the opposite of my everyday carry books <laughs> that I wrote the blog post, the article about at Close Reads HQ. So what they do is they read a few chapters at a time, kind of like we do here, and then they comment on what they find. You know, Sounds familiar. Readers keep their bearing and stuff. Yeah, it's very familiar. So 
they started the first time with War and Peace. So like us, they like to do the Russian, the Russians. And this month, they're actually doing uh, Les Mis, this Victor Hugo's book. So those are two great podcasts that you should check out. How Did an Elephant and Bibliophiles. Of course, they also have their online classes, which are for people that are in grades 5 through 12 or want to um, pretend to be a 5th through 12th grader on the internet, which is a fraught subject and you probably shouldn't try to do that. Uh, but they have, you know, all kinds of great courses that are just getting underway and, and the seats are still available. So between their online classes and then these two great podcasts, highly recommend you check out what Center for Lit is doing. So I know some of you know about Center for Lit and you know about Ian and Emily and Missy and and, and Adam. Uh, but for those of you who don't, who maybe are new to our podcast or have never heard, you didn't listen to the Lord of the Rings bonus pods with with Ian, go check them out because they've got great stuff going on. So just wanted to give a shout out there to our friends. So. Heidi, should we answer questions from our other friends now? I would love to. Let's start with this one, which is actually just at the top of the feed. It's from Jennifer. Um, and of course, these questions were sent in via email or they were sent in on the Close Reads Facebook page. This this one's from Jennifer. Why, Heidi, does Arseny slash Loris insist on not being buried? Throughout the book, he has been intent on honoring the inherent dignity of others through burial. He was distraught that Ustina and the baby were to be placed in the pauper's mass grave. He buried Blasky and Ambrosio. He lived in a cemetery. It is a corporeal work of mercy to bury the dead, says Jennifer. Great, great sentence. So then why does he insist that his body be dragged through the woods and left for the animals? Is it a final act of atonement, humility? Part of me wants to play the part of Antigone and bury him anyway. Heidi, what do you think about this? Yeah, I think that it's a confusing moment in the story. And I, I find myself groping for an answer to that question. Uh, and any answer I find in rattling around in my head feels less than satisfying. Um, but I, I think, Jennifer, you are on to something that it is an act of renunciation against the flesh, uh, a a way of continuing to mortify his flesh beyond the grave, continuing to repent beyond the grave. And I'd, I think a statement even against his own flesh uh, in the sense that the lust of the flesh led him to commit his great sin, sins in the plural. And he has spent his life attempting to repent uh, and he still isn't satisfied with the result at the end of his life. Um, and mm. I, I, I think that that's, I think, I think that's it. But I'll, maybe with Jennifer, I don't want to speak for you, Jennifer, or any of our other listeners who relate to this. I, I, um, I still find that troubling. It's not a satisfying answer to me. Um, and I, I, I wonder if that was Vodolajkin's, um intent is to leave that unsettled for us. Um, but I, I, that's how, at least how I interpreted it as a renunciation of the flesh, even from beyond death. I don't know. What about you, David? I mean, that's how I instinctively read it. Is it, I'm wondering though, you said it troubles you and I'm wondering if it, does it trouble you because it leaves dramatic gaps in the story for you? In other words, that there's not a, it doesn't. It doesn't resolve the the story satisfyingly, or it leaves some some part of the story unsatisfyingly tied up. Or does it trouble you from a thematic or dare I say even theological standpoint? That's a really good question. Uh, I think it doesn't trouble me theologically because I, you know, because even though in the Orthodox Church we do bury the dead, we do not cremate. There is a a, a pres- prescribed way of burial for. For the Orthodox, yeah. and that would for our Sinni, uh, I'm not worried about his salvation. Um, nor was I ever worried about Ustina's salvation, frankly. Right. But I. So it's not that. I think it's more that, to your point, just I'm groping kind of for a way that it works within the story, knowing medieval beliefs about burial and the church's teachings about burial. I, I, I find it can't really settle with it artistically and thematically, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. And it just feels very mysterious and kind of convoluted, which maybe that's the point. I also think that there's a lot of commentary within the book because this is such a multi-layered book. Uh, there's no way that we could in these short conversations get to the bottom of really anything, any one thing, plus it's just so multi-layered. Um, I think that yeah. one one layer of the story that we haven't delved into as much as it deserves, but we just couldn't because of time constraints, uh, is is the commentary on Russia and, uh, and mm-hmm. Russian culture, uh, which one reason I think we haven't delved too deeply in that is that we don't know as much as we should <laughs> to make the comments, but right. there definitely seems in that burial scene, particularly to be, uh, a commentary on Russian culture and this kind of, um, contradictory way that Russians even, uh, approach themselves in their own national identity, uh, with such a reverence and respect on one hand, and then on the other hand, a, a self-deprecation and even a bit of self-loathing um, that's very deeply embedded, I'm sure, in many cultures across the world, but particularly in Russian literature, that tends to be a theme, um, just the contradiction of that, how much we love and yet struggle with their own identity uh, as Russians. And so I think within that within the story, that's yet another layer that comes out in an allegorical way in Arseni's burial or lack of burial, excuse me. Do you, do you want to move on to another question or do we want to keep like, I, it's a Q and a, we got to move on. Cause I, I think, <laughs> yeah, but you know, it these questions feels like a dot, 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 even there, it feels like it's not closed off. And I, I, I think maybe that's one of the things that makes that part of the story so compelling is that you want to keep talking about it to kind of like plumb the depths of it, but it is a mystery. Right. So yeah, yeah, let's, let's go on to another question. That's the best I can do for now. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. There's a question from Coley here. We got a few examples of this sort of question and it'll lead to some other questions as well. Um, shout out to Coley, by the way, she and our friend April used to drive down to the bookstore periodically from Asheville and then Coley moved. So Coley, hope you're settling into your new home. Okay, she says, can you please address the obsession with the end of the world? I'm especially confused why Ambrosio seems to believe the end of the world will be the year 7,000, even though he's had these visions of occurrences way past this. What do they mean by the end of the world, and why does it feature so, 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 so prominently in this book? Surely it's not a plot device, because very little of the plot seems to rest on this anxiety. I just don't get it. We had a couple other questions about this, too. Um, Yeah, so... There's over the the centuries of human existence, there have been many, many uh, obsessions or attempts to predict or explain uh, the end of the world in a theological sense. The Middle Ages were no different. They were, first of all, obsessed with numbers. Numerology was a huge deal. Uh, in in medieval times, and medieval scholars searched, or many medieval scholars searched the scriptures to to predict the end of the world and then kind of overlapped that with their study of numbers. It just made sense to the medieval mind that God would begin and end the world in an orderly sequence that could be discoverable uh, in some kind of like coded way having to do with numbers and symbolism and all that stuff. So the the number seven is obviously a big deal uh, in, in Christian theology and continues to be today. Um, and so there's a there's scripture that says, well, I'll recognize this verse if you know the Bible at all, that says to God, a thousand years is like a day. And the, the medievals took that literally. They believed that uh, that to God, 1,000 years was as a day. And so they took that as a coded message about the end of the world, that the world was going to be seven, that was going to, to exist for 7,000 years, one for every day, 1,000 years for every day of the week. God created the world in seven days. And so he would end the world in 7,000 years because each of those days would be symbolically a thousand years of history. And, um, and so they believed that they knew when the world began and that therefore 7,000 years later would be the day the world would end. And just like today, they knew that that was a theory um, and not everybody believed it, um, but it was part of their culture the same way that we kind of got to Y2K 
um, 22 years ago and everyone was like a little worried that we're, you know, our economy is going to collapse and maybe it would be the end of the world. That's how they approached the year 1492, what we call 1492, which was to them 7,000 years after the world began. Um, and so they like really worried and believed that perhaps that would be the end. And I think that actually does fit very well within the um, anxiety, underlying anxiety of the story and the question of eternity and time and how time meets eternity. Uh, and also the end of the world would be, would correspond on a cosmic level to death on an individual level and death in the end of days for, for Ustina, for Arseni, for Ambrosio, death is a huge theme in the book. And so to make the characters, or at least, you know, a couple of the characters, um, and the surrounding, to capture the surrounding anxiety about the end of the world, I actually think is a pretty brilliant plot device because it gives us on a cosmological level what each individual feels about their approaching death, not knowing when it's going to come, but knowing that it's going to come. Uh, and and so I, I think that it creates kind of this really interesting tension within the story, another layer of anxiety within the story, um, and um, an allegory for death and the fear of death. Uh, and and I, I think that it's really cool um, for Vodolajka as a medieval scholar to kind of capitalize on that medieval anxiety and work it into his contemporary retelling. I, I think it's really, I think it works really well. Tim, Tim has made his triumphant return. Uh, is it triumphant, Tim? Or are you coming with your tail between your legs? We're not, <laughs> it's a return. It's a sure. return. Let's just call yeah. it a return. <laughs> a reappearance. Yeah. <clears throat> Hi, everybody. Hello. I walked in we're, on some Heidi brilliance. I walked in. I was like, oh, this is interesting already. Oh, Tim. Tim, welcome home. We're so, are you wearing a kilt right now? I am not yet wearing a kilt, but I have a feeling there might be one mail ordered soon. I love this. This is so exciting. You guys, you guys are <laughs> witnessing our listeners, our, are witnessing our reunion. So I know. How long is so it? Great. It's been three it's been weeks. Too long, Tim. Well, you, too so long. Heidi, Heidi missed an episode and then you missed two. So there so, was three yeah, episodes. Close to, a, so close to a month, maybe. Yeah. Of like, I mean, we've been talking and stuff, but through the, through the text message. The, the miracle of modern technology. I was going to say yeah. modern tech, the, the miracle and annoyance of modern technology. <laughs> so Tim, um, we were talking about the end of the world there. I think Heidi about covered it as, be, as well as we're going to be able to cover it in a Q&A, but would you like to add anything to that? Uh, Kelly kind of tags onto the question that I asked and she says, I thought that on a second read, I would understand or appreciate Ambrosio's visions of the future, but I didn't. Mm. I felt like I was marking time during the descriptions of them waiting for the story to continue. I could not make the connection to the story at all. So the proper, you know, the story proper, the, the the primary thread. Was there a particular connection that his visions were having to the story that was being told, or or were they just random clairvoyant visions that he was having? And because he was in the story, his visions came with him. So Heidi kind of answered that, where she's talking about the cosmological perspective of the medievals. And, and but is there anything that you can add to that, or would like to address on this question? Well, it's funny because Heidi's answer was like an educated answer. I might have tried to say something similar, but would have been it would have been more of a hunch. It would have been something like, my hunch is that they had a kind of a vision of the end of the world. Um, and he's in some way articulating it, but I had done no research on that the way that it sounds like Heidi has. So I have nothing beyond that to... to how dare you not assume that Heidi just had that knowledge in her head? Well, maybe she, maybe she did. Maybe she was born with it. You know, <laughs> maybe it's Maybelline, <laughs> or, maybe, or maybe it's Maybelline. It's Maybelline. Just so y'all know, <laughs> <laughs> Socrates believes that all knowledge is just recollecting what has been forgotten. Yeah, but so he didn't maybe have the I did know it. So <laughs> <laughs> this is. This, this, and that—that's that theory by Socrates is why understanding is overrated. Oh, interesting. And recall is say, overrated. Say more. What do you mean? Well, people always talk about like people come into the bookstore all the time, and they're like, "I read so much, and then I don't feel like I remember a lot of it. Mm. Like I can only point to a few things that I remember." And I, I feel this way when I read books of history. Like I'll read this big book of history, and I'm kind of acutely aware as I'm reading of the reality that I'm not going to remember everything that I'm reading, and I become a little self-conscious in the experience of it, and it's a little disturbing. But then I found that 
I'll read something and then two years later, I'll be in a conversation with somebody and I'll realize I, I remembered more. You know, I'd slept on it for a while mm. and I remembered more. And I think that there is, I think our, our imagination and our, and our brains <laughs> have this ability to hold on to things for either, I, I kind of think maybe for when we need them, um, but also in a way that, we're, that something has to trigger an awareness that we know something. So I think just being able to regurgitate what you heard, I, that sounds like a gross word, but you know what I mean, is not necessarily proof that you're reading something or that it was worth reading something. Mm. Just because you think you've forgotten what you read doesn't mean that you didn't read it. Yeah. Um, is, is, I guess what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and reading is such an immersive experience. I think I've used this example on the air before, but I've had a couple of friends and also my wife are therapists. And of course, therapists are not allowed to like use identifying, you know, marks about their clients or anything like that. But sometimes I would say, how was your day? And they'll say, oh, I had a meeting with a client and it was just incredible. What was so incredible about it? Oh my gosh, I have no idea. You know, like they can't back out from the experience and enumerate the things that made it incredible. It's more of this kind of like whole person immersive conversation that's happening. And that just seems to me like a great analogy for what happens when we're reading a really great book. We are in the ocean you know, mm-hmm. the ocean of the text and pulling out and identifying what fish we saw underneath is not necessarily an easy task. Man, Heidi, Tim comes, he just comes with metaphors. That's he so comes great. with a metaphor. It's like, you know, Tim opens his mouth and metaphors spill, spill out. out. Spill forth. That's true. His <laughs> hey, Tim, vocabulary there's a question. and metaphors. That's, yeah, that's really yeah, nice. Exactly. That makes me feel good. But don't worry, we're still going to team up on a brother later. Okay. <laughs> um, so, hey, Tim, there is a, speaking of teaming up, there is a question here uh, that is directly for you. It comes from Doug. I'm so this is something glad that I knew here. we would have to talk I'm about. I'm so glad Tim is here to answer this question because I've been dying oh, to hear no. the answer. Oh, no. The, yeah, the last few weeks, of course, without you has been two Orthodox people talking about a pretty Orthodox book. It's mm. um, not fair. We needed so, you. So, so it's not. It's not fair. Yeah. Um, and although neither of us were our cradle Orthodox, I think being Orthodox now sort of, uh, I was going to say distorts our perspective and I can't think of a better word. So I'll just use that for now, even if it's not the right one. But Tim, Doug asks this, can you address reading this book as a Protestant? This book is practically the opposite of justification by a faith. Alone. Oh yeah. Uh, insert David's commentary, maybe question mark and David's commentary. I'm a Calvinist and I had a hard time with the book. I think to come away from the book loving it, you have to accept or already believe the theological presuppositions in the book. I couldn't do that. Laura spends his life trying to earn something that I believe is freely given and lived to save someone already gone. So um, there was quite a bit of conversation on this. Me too. Yeah, there was a lot of feedback and people... Yeah, people were responding to that. And you people can, and if you want to dig in a little bit further on this conversation, just encourage you to go check some of the other conversation because uh, it's good. It's it's very thoughtful and kind as always on the Close Reads group. But Tim, this is your time to to talk for the next 20 minutes about this. Yeah. I'm going to mute I, and I'm just going to drink 20, my drink. a long time. I'm not going to talk for 20 minutes. I'm going to talk for two. I um, really, I, I kind of, feel this question from Doug because yeah, I'm not Orthodox. I'm still kind of in the broader Protestant traditions though. I've moved a little, I mean, I'm Anglican. Um, so I'm, I don't know, somewhere in that middle between the West, between Protestantism and Catholicism. And that's called Anglicanism. But I still like feel the question. There was a whole lot about Loris's journey that just demands for someone who has a Protestant background, a kind of um, acceptance. I think it demands that you accept the rules of the game in order to like actually accept the game. And so my imaginative faculties were very active and I very deliberately checked my rational, not rational faculties, my critical faculties until after completing the book. And, um, 
I think that's the right way to read. And I also think it's a little bit of a scary place to read if you apply that to authors that you that you don't share much in common with that are like far, far, far outside of the Christian tradition. You know what I mean? Like, I, re- I remember, I'm going to tell a story about, um, there's a philosopher in the 90s named Richard Rorty. He taught at the University of Virginia, and he wrote an essay that I read called Solidarity Versus Objectivity. And he basically says, look, here's the whole problem with the world. Um, there are certain people, and there are religious people, who believe that you can have kind of an objective view of the world and the rest of us know that you can't and we just kind of want to form a solidarity with each other and kind of like be in um, league as advocates for like human beings. And he's very dismissive of those who would have kind of like an objective point of view and he was all about solidarity. And the funny thing is, and I read it and I just gave myself over to the essay because I think that's the right way to go. And for three days, I was just like this kind of like <laughs> this raging relativist, you know? And then after three days, I was like, wait a second. There's some problems here, Richard. I have some questions for you, Richard. Rick. Rick. And so I, you know, I kind of got off that bandwagon, but I was on that bandwagon for a few days. And I kind of think that that's the way to do it. And so, yeah, Doug, I don't think there's anything wrong with you being like, yeah, I'm just not buying this. I don't think this is like, um, I think this is like theologically kind of dubious. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I do. And I I do think it is a skill to be able to willingly, um, put aside those reservations during the reading and to hold off on them for later. That's what I would advocate. I mm-hmm. think that's, that's the charitable thing to do. And okay. I actually think it makes for the best sort of criticism. So there was a really interesting follow-up comment here in this thread of comments. Again, I encourage you to read them, but Kat, I'm not going to read her whole comment, but she basically says... I'm with you. The theological presupposition is just so far from what I believe that I pitied Arsene for spending his life in unnecessary suffering. She goes on a little bit further. She says, this really made me more glad of my own beliefs rather than making orthodoxy more appealing. I feel bad saying that, but shrug emoji. There are parts of the story enjoyed, but I'm glad it's over and I I don't love it. Okay. So Heidi, one question I have, well, this is for both of you. Do we think that Eugene Vodoloshkin is trying to make orthodoxy seem appealing. Like, because that's one of the things that, and and also there's that part of it. That's complicated a little bit by the fact that a lot of the church fathers even like actively try to make orthodoxy seem unappealing. That's a different question though. But then, then the question is beyond that, do you think that he is trying to speak theology? To me, that's one of the questions that that conversation presupposes that, he is trying to make theological statements and that you're supposed to be able to say, well, this is what Orthodoxy believes, the Orthodox Church believes because Eugene Vodoloshkin is putting it in this book. And that is something that I personally would say don't do. <laughs> so I'd love to hear what you have to say about that, Heidi. And then Tim, you can jump in if, you, if you'd like to as well. I do not think that Eugene Vodoloshkin wrote this book to to try to convert or explain the Orthodox faith. Um, I think he just wrote a great story from the perspective of a Russian medieval man. Like I, and, and that's the whole point. I don't, this is not a book intended to convert. It's, it's a novel. Um, However, I think that the conversations that we had on the podcast uh, were in in many ways, and probably coming from me most of all, why I love this book is because of that. And so I think that it's fair for our listeners to have these to have these questions. I thought and expected so much more conversation on the Facebook page that was like Doug's question. I thought that that was how this book conversation was going to go. Um, and there was some of that. And I had hoped for that because I think that 
this is out of any book I've ever read. And I've read a lot of books about orthodoxy and about, um, and I've read a lot of novels. Um, although I've hardly read any novels from an Orthodox Christian perspective, this might be the only one I know of other. Well, I guess maybe the Russians, yeah, what but about, still what about Karamazov. No, or, that, so that's not fair. I mean, because what I said earlier, take it back. Yeah. They, yes, exactly. So, um, and all of those books were very, very meaningful to me. Um, but you wouldn't, I don't think anybody would pick up crime and punishment and say, this is, this is intended to promote orthodoxy. And I don't think that Vodolajkin is either. Yeah. I think he just wrote a great story from a Russian perspective. And because we're not Russian, we need some interpretation to get what he's getting at because it is so different from any of our Western kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's Western faith, which tends to be Protestant or Catholic, or um, Western culture, contemporary Western culture. So everything about this book is foreign. And so we on the podcast have been trying to provide a context for understanding kind of the foreignness of the, and being able to immerse ourselves in the book. Um, and I've been unapologetically positive about it. And so, but that doesn't mean that that's what Vodolajkin was doing. And I don't think he was. I think he's just writing a book and great novel and you can, you can accept it or not. Um, and, and so I, 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 I definitely think that the conversation that's raised by this book is both cultural and religious. The questions that are raised by this book are both cultural and religious. And so I really appreciate Doug and Kat and anybody else from our listeners who challenge that and say, and and ask the questions that are raised from their own theological perspective. And so I'm I'm grateful for it. I think it creates a rich kind of dialectic around a novel like this. I appreciate it. I think it's awesome. I, I think it's the the medieval aspect of it is important too, because we've we've talked about it being Agreed. orthodox, but we've also tried to say that it's medieval orthodox and that medieval word there is a huge part of the perspective of these characters and the way he's thinking and the way he's approaching his life and the way people are responding to him. And it's one of the things that Fadalashkin is trying to capture. He's very interested in that medieval perspective, the medieval point of view. as well. Russian, yeah. Yeah, like I think... And Russian as well, which is different from the West. Right, yeah. I think if you like, if, if you are like, this is orthodox soteriology. If you talk to an orthodox priest right now, they're not going to tell you, they're not going to like give you something that's that close to what you're getting here in this book, I don't think, at least on the surface. So like the medieval part of it, I think is is a key part of what Vodolashkin's after. Tim, do you want to add anything? No. <sighs> no, I don't want to add anything. Well, here's a question for you then, because this comes from Russell. He says, Loris seemed quite conscious of some of its Russian antecedents. Can you talk about the parallels between Aloysius' relationship with Zazama and Arsenes with Inokenti and with the monastic life more broadly? Boy, boy, what a great question. Um, the only thing that I will say is I think, so we're going to talk about Brothers Karamazov for a second, because that's the illusion. Alyosha is one of three protagonists, let's say, but I think of the three, he's probably the most central protagonist in Dostoevsky's Brother Karamazov, his magnum opus, his last book. I think what's interesting about Loris is that there does seem to be, it seems like part of Alyosha's journey in the Brothers Karamazov is to basically, while revering his mentor master, Zosima, he also kind of has to step free of him in some way. So Zosima urges Alyosha that he needs to go, he needs to leave the monastery. He needs to kind of like experience the outside world. And honestly, fast forward the next minute if you don't want to know how Brothers Karamazov ends. Irmas. Uh Alyosha ends up doing that. At the end, he, in a way, he goes out into the world, out from under the care of the monastery. 
So to tie it back to Loris, it seems like Loris's whole life has been spent outside of the monastery. And in some way, he's um, a representative of orthodoxy and also in a strange way, kind of it's deliberate outcast. Um, and it seems like this has been done by forces outside of Loris. This has been, you know, like, like, it seems like God has pushed Loris to stay outside of the church and yet to kind of represent the faith as being outside of the church. So there's an interesting kind of duality and reversal in the mentoring relationships of these two books. Um, okay, let's move on here. Just obviously, you know, this is how the Q&As go. Okay, so there was a couple points, a couple comments that pointed out that the name Anastasia, Anastasia, means resurrection, which is something we did not talk about last week. So then there's a question here from Amanda. And she says, love much about this book, but have so many questions. The, she says, the public confession of Loris's sin seemed pivotal. True, his sin wasn't against Anastasia, but it was the sin he was guilty of with Ustina. And by now, time isn't all that important or re- relevant or linear or question mark. And thereon, it felt to me that he loved Anastasia deeply and truly in a way he never loved Ustina, at least in life, including being humble enough to seek help from a midwife. Is this yet another form of penance or just a way for him to understand that he had changed? Laura saved Anastasia. As was pointed out, Anastasia means resurrection. Ustina's name means justified. So long way to my main question. It's not tied up in a neat bow, but it truly seems these women are intertwined in some mystic way. Is it possible Vadalashkin is telling us Loris was successful in saving Ustina without telling us Loris was successful in saving Ustina? Heidi. We touched oh, on yeah. this that a is, little bit last yes. week. Yes, that is absolutely what I think it is. I, I, and I think that it is uh, so important, especially with the folding of time. And I think um, that, man, I just, I just love that comment. And I, I think that that is my interpretation of, of, of the end of the book, um, that with the folding, time, the overlapping of time, uh, he is given an opportunity by God to, um, to participate in physically helping this young woman, Anastasia, he, he's able to do for her what he should have done for Ustina. And, and that is God's grace. This, the book of repose begins with a prayer, uh, that, that Arseni makes at, in Jerusalem, um, when he couldn't hang the icon lamp, right. But he's able to offer his prayer. He's gone on this pilgrimage and he's able to offer his prayer that God would give him a sign that his work has not been in vain. Um, and then he's sent back with a rebuke by the elder standing nearby says, don't ask for a sign, just go and do good, right. Do the next good thing. That's what you do. And, uh, and so he repents of asking for a sign and then God in his mercy and grace gives him a sign. He gives him an opportunity. He gives him a way of participating in this saving Anastasia. And in so doing, I believe, um, that, that, that he gives works and grace. And I think that's the ultimate ending of the book, that there is such mercy and grace from God and God in the, the mercy and grace from God is the opportunity to make up in a sense for what he has done, not to earn his salvation, but to participate in it in a meaningful and embodied way on earth. Uh, and, and that's his last act. Yes, I think it's penance, but I also think it's a participation in the mercy of God. I think mm. it's so beautiful. I love it. Tim, do you want to add anything? I got nothing. Nothing better than that. Okay. Hannah says, I would love to hear more about this book containing, quote, a great love story, which I believe Heidi was something you said at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Reading Loris the first yeah. time, I definitely did not see the relationship between Arseny and Ustina as anything positive. It seemed scary, actually. I love the book, and my initial interpretation was that Arseny's treatment of Ustina is meant to pit the reader against him, to make him the worst of sinners, all selfish passion, and then to take us on a journey from some from 
worst sinner to Christ-like figure. Listening to the podcast, it seemed like y'all had a more positive read on the relationship. And the book does seem to affirm the strength of his love and his prayers. As it goes on, and he sacrifices so much in her name. So am I wrong to read the initial relationship as deeply unloving? Tim, you want to jump on this one first, and then we'll let Heidi respond to, to respond to you? Yeah, boy, I do not see it as a deeply unloving relationship. Um, I mean, I, I think that it is... He really loves Ustina. I think that the trouble occurs, I read it as, because of his pride. Mm-hmm. He knows better. He doesn't want to go tell the priest that they are, you know, functionally husband and wife. He doesn't want to provide. He kind of ignores her concerns about her pregnancy. Um, He says, I can deliver this baby even though he's never done it before. Um, And they run into immediate trouble and he's in over his head and she suffers the consequences. Whereas if she had had a midwife present, it's conceivable that she, that was an unintentional pun, she could have lived, the baby could have lived. So, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I read the relationship as deep, sincere, and loving. And I read Arsene's failure to be one of hubris. So can I, can I ask a follow-up question just for either of you? The, there's the question of hubris and of pride. Where does the where does the role of or what is the role of guilt in this? Because I think you could also say he feels guilty for these sins that he has committed towards her and with her, and thus because he's he is guilty, he, he has guilt. He doesn't want to confess. He does not want to have to confess those sins for her to get help. And then he also has pride because he believes he's like, oh, I'm a healer. I've got this capacity to heal people. I'm like. This I've obviously, you know, and, and, and that doesn't end up being true. He, his, the, I got this becomes, I don't got this real quick. It comes, I don't got this. Yeah. Right. 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 So, so where's the role of guilt in this, this scenario here and in this book, Heidi, I'll let you touch on that first and then Tim, you can respond. Do you mean the role of his perception of his guilt or, or do you mean his Not actual like guilt? he has been, he is guilty for something, but the notion of like, feeling guilty for something and thus not wanting yeah. to confess it, you know, like you're like not, I know that, right. that you, there's a, that you guilt and and pride are not wanting to confess something because you don't want someone to look down on you is like a form of pride. So I'm just curious, do you think the book makes a distinction between those things? Uh, I think that the book gives us, <laughs> I think we talked about this a little bit last week, David, that um, it's, if you strip the book, if, if you strip his journey of, um, of, of spiritual weight, then you have a troubled psychological case, right? You have him as a, a man, not only who feels guilty, but is destroyed and consumed by guilt and spends his whole life trying to make up for it. Um, and, and so that's, it's interesting psychologically to consider that because of course that plays a role in every future action he makes. And, and, and what we talked about last week is like, where does guilt, personal guilt and, and repentance begin? And how do those things over true spiritual healing repentance begin? How do those two things overlap? Um, and which is which, how do you discern, uh, is I think, ambiguous in the book as it should be um because Vodolajkin has is taking a risk he's giving us this story and um we can interpret it however we want if we if we wanted to see him as guilty and motivated by guilt we can that actually works um psychologically within the story it doesn't explain the miraculous but it explains his actions um and and so where does guilt in true repentance begin? I, d- I don't really know, but I think they're all mixed up together, especially earlier in his journey. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, the thing that you said that really resonated with me, Heidi, is that if it's not like, uh, what I heard you say is like, if his journey is not in some way being carved out by God. If his work is not 
kind of like sanctioned and assigned to him by God, then it is kind of the story of someone who's suffering crippling psychological guilt. And that's the story of the book. But Mm -hmm. I think that we're right to accept the reality that God has put this on him in some ways. And you may quibble with that theologically, but I want to also acknowledge um, that the psychological reality of the guilt that he is feeling is, is genuine and real. It's right for him to feel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is the person he... And, and human. Like, it's not like it's, it's not artificial or like having contrived. I, I referenced the movie The Mission, I think, on the first or second episode that we did. And there's a story about... A, and, and the character is played by Robert De Niro. And Robert De Niro is this man who I think was part of the slave trade. He would buy and sell human beings in, oh gosh, South America. I, I can't... I think it's Argentina, isn't it? Oh, is it Argentina? Um, and then he converts. He becomes a Christian. And he feels so burdened by the actual human destruction that he wrought during his time as a slave trader that he like demands to be given the heaviest penance possible. And so he drags around for half the movie, this huge burden of armor, breastplates and shields, and this tremendously heavy burden. He's climbing mountains with it. And finally, the priest who, Jeremy Irons, I think, has seen him like just punishing himself and he finally has just had enough. He comes in with a sword and he hacks the burden off Robert De Niro's back. And it's this real freeing moment. But I think what's so interesting about it is that Robert De Niro could not let it go on his own terms. He had to have an outside influence come in and say, your work is done. You must let this go. Because I, I think that would have felt to him like cheating. And I think there's something similar is going on with Loris here. Like mm-hmm. there is no way to be free from the thing that he has done. Um, and yeah. the only way that he can actually accept it. No, how do I say this? The only way that he can carry it through to the end is if it's actually kind of like sanctioned by God. Hmm. Otherwise it's just, endless kind of like interior torture, penance, 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 no grace. But there's something about the fact that was given to him by God that makes it, I don't, I don't know, I don't know about bearable, but I don't know. Right. Well, why can't penance be acts of gifts of grace? Yeah. And in this right. case, it, it, it is certainly right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to, I want to go back even to the original question of, is this a great love story? And I, I think that <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was a question, fact, wasn't it? Like if I think even the fact that, that, that any conversation about Arseni's love for Ustina always ties back to his journey of, of penance, of, of redemption, right? That, that to me, I actually agree. I think he was, a very great, he was very selfish. He was very prideful. He was controlling. He was, he, and if, if she had not died, that would have been their life. And I I think that's really important to, to, to think of, like if she had lived through childbirth and would he have continued to kind of hold her hostage in the woods with their baby to protect his reputation, right? Like there's, uh, there's, it was bad. He was, it's possible to have a genuine affection and erotic attachment to somebody that's real and yet do damage to them their whole life. And that's what was happening with Arsenia and Ustina. And, and because she died, and he caused her death through that he spends the whole rest of his life dying to his flesh in love of her. Like there's such an allegory of love in that. Like that's how I began my marriage, right? Being a, being selfish and prideful and wrong about everything and wanting my way. Right. And, and then over the years, I think I may have learned how to love better as I died to myself 
And I, and so in, in a way, this, this, this is why I think it's a great love story. It's not because he's a great lover. He's not, that's the whole point. The point is he's not a great lover. And, and yet he spends his whole life dying to himself to learn how to love in purity and in faith and participate there in that way in his salvation and in hers. Um, not because he's trying to, not out of a works righteousness mentality, but out of a mentality that's like, I love her. So I will die to myself forever and gain absolutely nothing from it because they can't go to bed together. They can't live life together. They can't talk to each other. Like it's, it's such an allegory of the outpouring of love and the cost of love um, for a greater reward that's coming, not in this life, but in the life to come. And that's why I think it's a great love story. Not because he was a good person when they were together. He wasn't. That's the point. And his love for her and then ultimately for other people is what helps it, it is what generates a deeper love for God. Mm-hmm. Which I think is yes. another part of it. Hey, okay, let's let's um Tim, I have a question for you. I know that you are an expert in uh fools and in foolishness. Um, are you also an expert in, in, in I'm an expert in foolishness? Yeah. We I did promise yeah. you that we would gang up on a brother at some point. So Heidi, jump on here whenever you're ready. Uh so I know you're an expert in fools and foolishness. Are you also an expert in holy fools? I'm, or holiness. I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not. <laughs> there it was. There it was. Okay. So uh, the reason I ask is because Jennifer asks, I've wondered why the holy fools were so violent toward one another. I associate holiness with nonviolence, and I didn't understand their lack of self-control with their words and actions. Um, Alex Gonzalez responded by saying, I'm guessing the holy fools didn't want people to see them as holy, and therefore they act the way they do so that some people will scorn them. Uh, anyway, do you have any thoughts on this in all of your expertise on, on foolishness, if not holiness? I don't, except for I, I have asked myself the same question. Heidi, you, you've got a good answer for this, I suspect. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think Alex is right. The, the whole point of a holy fool is that you renounce uh, the flesh and your own reputation. And, uh, and, and I, I think that that's, what we see in the whole holy fool section. I just really love that section. I think it's very, um, but, but the, in my first reading, it was like completely over my head. Like I, I was like, what is this book? Like I couldn't, I didn't get it at all, at all. The first time I read it, I'd never heard of a holy fool. Um, and I ended up Googling it and, and even in Googling it, I was like, that's weird. That is very weird. Um, we don't really have anything like that in the West. So it's, I think it's just a little discombobulating that whole section, go back and read it again. Google Holy Fools, read about some same stories of Holy Fools if you want to, and then go back and read it again. And it kind of puts it into context, but it's a section. I think that it's okay if it's really disorienting the first time you read it. Um, but yeah, holy fools, they renounce the world. They renounce their reputation. They look like fools. And the hope is, and the prayer is that, um, that God will give them a vision beyond the flesh um, and to see what, uh, you know, there's, I think there's a section, is that, that's in, that's in this book, right? There's a section in which, um, doesn't Arseni throw rocks at demons that are yeah. like by houses? Yeah. Um, that's well, the idea. Is that, that him or is it one of the other holy fools? I don't it know. might be, I can't remember. I can't remember. And our, some listener is, you know, announcing it to their speaker right now. So <laughs> forgive me for getting it wrong. Um, but yeah, the, the idea for many whole, the story of many holy fools is that they, they can see in the spiritual realm, um, what, what ordinary people can't see because they have renounced the flesh and the world in such a unique way. Um, they're able to fight against demons and, um, and hear the voice of God and, um, in in a unique in a unique way, they can see beyond the veil, but at great cost. 
So we need to wrap this up. Uh, Heidi has to get over to this rehearsal and I have to get my kids situated for me to get over to the rehearsal dinner and all that. Um, I just want to, there was a question here that was directed to me and it basically, since I've mentioned my issues and distance from the book, has it changed since reading it through the second time? Uh, the only thing I would say about that is not really, I think there's the things that I appreciate it. I appreciate it about it a little bit more and the things that I had problems with or just struggled with. I feel the same about, so maybe my esteem for it is gone up a notch or two just over in the course of like, just based on the notion of equilibrium. <laughs> um, before we go, Heidi, any final thoughts on this book? I know this is a book you love. Um, next book we're going to do is a gentleman in Moscow, our, our old friend Ian Andrews, who I mentioned earlier. He's going to be Which joining I also us for that. love. Yeah, yeah, it's Russia, but a very different. Well, it's it takes place in Russia, not a very Russian novel. We'll talk about that. It's not very Russian, yeah. Um, and so we're going to do that next, and that that reading schedule will get posted here soon. Um, but Heidi, final thoughts on this book, and then we'll let Tim have some final thoughts, and then we'll go. I don't really have any final thoughts um, to share. I've I have been. A um, staunch and like unequivocal lover of this book on the on the show, um, and I remain that. Um, so I think I'm grateful to have done it. Um, but I also will say I know that this is not necessarily a book for the masses. <laughs> um, it's not a book for everybody. Um, so it's just been a delight to be able to share my love of it. And I hope you all don't mind how, how much of a proponent that I was for it. So anyway, loved it. Yeah. Thank you. People really hate when you guys are enthusiasts for things. One thing I've discovered <laughs> over the years, just people just like renouncing I, the show I, I while driving down also, the road. And I also, <laughs> I want to also just acknowledge like what Heidi said, you're not a bad reader. If this book is not for you, I I've known so many people that are like enthusiastic, passionate and excellent novel readers. And they just slog this book. So mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with you. It's, it's a unique, it's a unique book. I stand by it. Heidi stands by it. David, maybe Man. one day we'll enter the fold. Enter the fold. I stand by its right to exist. <laughs> right, right. Oh, wow, no. that's <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's faint praise. Strong words. No, no, I, I just no, I think, I think it's a at best. I mean, at worst, it is a very interestingly conceived and thoughtful book. At worst, just because I have a hard time with it personally doesn't mean that I think that it's not like there's a lot of skill and a lot of thought and a lot of things that are worth discussing. So, but you know, we try not to choose books that. Aren't, aren't great. Tim, go ahead. Could I make a couple plugs? I yeah, I wish you would. I um would like to tell everybody that we are gonna start up the next season of the plays the thing. Heidi and Brandon and I are going to do a one-off discussion of Henry the Fourth Part Two. So we did a full discussion on all five acts of Henry the Fourth Part One. We're gonna follow it up with a one-off on Henry the Fourth, Part Two, and then Matt Bianco of Circe and our friend Nora Ankrum are going to discuss All's Well That Ends Well. One other quick plug: next month, um, Classical U is going to release a series of continuing ad videos, ostensibly for uh, classical educators on uh, teaching Shakespeare in the classroom. I worked with them to develop four or five, excuse me, a five or six part series on like how to make Shakespeare interesting to kids. And that will be launching probably in about six weeks. So mm. I'll have a little bit more maybe next time I'm on the show about where people can see that. Classical U though is the organization. Nice. Well, there's a lot, lot of stuff going on. So a lot of resources available. Heidi, Heidi's got, her Cersei Atrium program, and then you've got your your th your thing through Classical U. Just a lot of Shakespeare talk going on out there. A lot of, a lot of Shakespeare uh, love. Speaking of y'all being chatter. enthusiasts. A lot of chatter. All right. Well, like I said, next week, we'll begin a gentleman in Moscow. 
Tim, you'll be off for that one for a little bit, and then you'll be back for My Name is Asher Lev, I believe, as we conclude the year. Don't forget that we did reveal the 2023 books. If you go to closereads.substack.com, check out Close Reads HQ, or check it out on the Facebook page. You can see that full list of all 12 books that we did. Um, we're really excited about this year's list. Um, it's going to be a good time. Uh, a lot of really interesting books, uh, some shorter books. I think it's going to. I think it's going to be a very compelling 2023 year on the show. So thanks to everyone who's been listening. Thanks to everyone who um, sent in questions, and thanks to everyone who supports the show over on CloseReads.substack.com. Uh, don't forget about our East of Eden conversations over there. Got another one of those episodes coming soon. And, uh, and yeah, check out Tim over on the place thing. Tim and Heidi and Matt and Nora and whoever else Tim wrangles into into doing that. So Brandon. Brandon, that's right. Yeah, I knew I was forgetting somebody, but I forget Brandon on purpose. So just kidding, Brandon. All right. Well, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Curran. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time. Happy reading. Thank you.